let's talk about today, we're talking about uh, a family that prays, uh, and, and we've kind of made it clear at the beginning that we're not just trying to teach you how to have a family prayer time every week, though that's a really good thing. We've given you some tools to do that, and I hope you'll start to do it. You know, I think a, a good start for those of you who've never had any type of prayer together as a family, uh, uh, it might seem a little awkward to to sit down and have prayer with your family, but you know what you can do? Start with praying over the meal. Start with at dinner time every night, or I know you probably don't have dinner together every night, but uh, th- that's another uh, conversation we, we should have, is you should be trying to have dinner together a certain number of nights a week. I don't know what works for you. I'm not saying trying to put any guilt trip on you or anything, but whatever, whatever would work for you. Uh, start praying over the meal. And I tell you, take a, I'm going to ask you to take another step. When you go out to eat in front of everybody in the restaurant, Bow your head and pray over the meal. I don't think, I don't think it, it kills uh, uh, bacteria in the food or anything. Uh, I just feel like we're in a world where everybody stands up and says whatever they think and whatever they feel. And so you're a follower of Christ. You should have a little courage too. You should be standing up for what you feel and what you think. And so... A simple act of bowing your head in a restaurant will be good for your soul and good, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So it'll be a little way that you and your family can stand up and say, we're followers of Christ. We believe in God. And they may think you're just talking to your food too. You know, that's possible. So let's talk about doing something. We're talking about raising children who follow Christ. Let's talk about doing something, though, that's never been done under the conditions that we're being asked to do them today. Uh, perhaps you've seen the movie Martian with Matt Damon, and he gets uh, trapped on Mars, right? And uh, gets abandoned on Mars, and he has to figure out how to get a message back to Earth that he needs to be rescued and that he's alive. He has to go science crazy and figure out how to grow vegetables on Mars. And he does. He figures out how to grow vegetables. I mean, he's, he's Matt Damon. He's got to come back, right? Well, raising a, a, raising a Christian family today is like raising vegetables on Mars. It's a challenge. Ancient Noah, we're going to use him today as the pioneer's guide for, for raising vegetables on Mars, for raising sons and daughters in an environment that supports it less than perhaps any other culture. And I'm going to try to make a case for that because i got somebody out there saying, no, it's not different than it's always, it's always been this way. Well, well, I'll push back on that in a minute. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an altar, to, uh, an ark, I mean, talk about Noah, to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know, here at Bethany Community Church, I thought a lot about our, our journey because January the 4th was 
30 years of, of ministry here. 30 years ago, January the 4th, Sherry and I came into town. Amen. I don't know if it means anything, but that was the day I did my last radiation treatment. The, the, the fourth, the exact day. So I don't know. I don't know anything to take out of that. But uh, but they celebrated with me down at Dana Farber. You know, if you've ever done, if you go to those, you've been that through that wonderful journey. You know, they they sprinkle confetti on you and give you a certificate when you come out after it's all over. So it was quite exciting. So uh, thirty years ago, a theme that gripped our hearts, Sherry and I was taking the faith to the next generation. That, that's the most important, I would say, if any one theme, and I know since, we, since Compassion New England's come along, the idea of connecting with the community is kind of a competing value for Bethany Community Church. But the value that's driven us more than any other for 30 years has been capturing the heart imparting the faith, creating serious Christ followers out of the next generation. In fact, a key verse that we used to quote back in the early days or read was Psalms 78.4. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Now the question comes, why do we want to do that? Well, first of all, we believe in the absolute certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Really, no other matter matters once you believe that. Once you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and we believe there's irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Even the story of Noah that we're drawing from today, even the story of Noah, you may be here today, and you don't believe it really happened. You believe it's an allegory and a metaphor. But even if you believe it's allegorical metaphor, it's still, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you believe this is the Bible is the word of God. So you have to believe God's trying to teach us something through the story, it, even if it's just a story. So it's okay with me. It, and I believe it really happened. And, and there's, there's a lot of smarter people than me who believe it really happened. Robert Ballard, a famous scientist, is you, you can see interviews, you go on the internet with him and all kinds of people believe there's incredible evidence of a global flood. Uh, uh, so so the science is, I know, I know what you're hearing out there, that science is not on our side, but that's just a lot of noise. Uh, so anyway, I believe it really happened. I mean, because, of course, I'm, I'm a diehard. I, I believe if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe it. You know? <laughs> But if, that, if, if that's not where you're at today, that's cool with me for as far as the context of the sermon is concerned. There's still something in the story. And, uh, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is another matter. That's the hinge belief that our faith hinges on. Secondly, so, so, so Christ rose from the dead. Uh, I believe it's, very impera it's imperative that I persuade my children that it's true. The second thing is the record that Christian faith works best for humans. It just does. It just works best. Human beings just work best when they're following the teachings and life of Christ. 
They just work best. We get along better. Our lives work better. We have a better earthly life, even if there was no eternity. Of course, that's the third leg of our three-legged stool, is the promise of eternal togetherness in the next room. One writer in the New Testament said it this way, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, that's the resurrection. Today, that's personal and societal goodness. And forever, Christianity has the most believable eternity story. Right? Sherry's told me this story, I've heard her telling it to others about being at a real estate convention one time, talking to a pastor's daughter. And um, I found out Sherry was pastor's wife, so come to find out you know, she, Sherry, she was a pastor's daughter. And in their conversation, she revealed to Sherry she did not believe in the Christian faith anymore. And it was, her reason was very interesting, part of her reasoning. She had just, uh, she had a child, I don't know, just had a baby, but she had a child. And she said, when I helped my baby, and I looked at my baby, I thought of the fact that my parents do not bother me about Christianity. That they never talk to me about whether I'm a Christian. They never bug me. And she said, I looked at my baby, and I said to myself, if my parents, if I believed what my parents say they believe about God and the Bible and Jesus, I could not breathe unless this child believed what I believe. She said, so I don't believe my parents really believe it. I think they've just joined a club and they got a lot of nice friends and they should continue to be a Christian because they've got a lot of nice people and it would really mess up their lives if they quit. Well, I don't think that lady, I didn't, wasn't there that day, and I'm sure a lot more was said. But um, I don't think she's been totally fair. And I don't think she was recognizing that part of the problem is culture has gone through some radical changes, making it more difficult than perhaps it's ever been to impart your faith to your offsprings. The Bible even has this sharp little rebuke for those who say, oh, everything's all the same, nothing's changed. First Peter 3, 4, he says, he has this rebuke for people who say, everything has continued as it was from the beginning. He said, no, it, it hasn't. It doesn't say the same. Then there's this wonderful little verse. I love this verse. Oh, this is one of my favorite verses of all time. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. We're, we're not going to talk much about it. But, but I wanted to share it with you. The men of Issachar, these are men who, who would become part of David's mighty men. Men of Issachar were, were men who began to go into battle with David. And part of the reason David recruited them was with the rest of this verse. The men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. So we have, a, a, we have a, an encouragement here to realize there might be some value in understanding our times and understanding that our times are not the times that my parents raised me in. That our times are not the times 
that the book of Acts was written in. Remember, remember all, those, uh, all those passages I read about household salvation? Dad or mom. We read all those passages. Remember week one? Week one, read all those passages where dad or mom, it wasn't just dad, even though that was a, that, even though it was a patriarchal culture. Even, even there's that case where I believe it was Lydia was the one. She, she accepts Jesus and all her household. You see that over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And when I finished that sermon that morning three weeks ago, I looked back over this congregation and I felt this tension in my heart. And I've been feeling it ever since. And I couldn't figure out where the tension was coming from, really. Till like Monday of this week, I started preparing early this week. So I, I got I to gotta figure out what's, why do I feel a sense of heaviness in getting up and telling people that they need to evangelize their children? Why do I feel and, why, and, and create spiritual homes? And it, it hit me. It hit me. And I, I don't want to say God spoke or anything, but, but thoughts that I believe were from God fell you're not realizing what they're up against. Things have changed specifically in Western culture. Specifically in Western culture, things have changed since my mother lay on the floor and I knew she was in her room on the floor hearing her crying, God save my boy. I'm not going to have a show of hands, but I wonder how many parents in this room today feel that way. That, that, that's probably like a story from Mars. And, I, and I'm not criticizing you. Oh, believe me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not putting you down at all. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You haven't done something wrong. That was a different world. No one suggested my mother should be, Brandy talked about this earlier, no one has suggested my mother be, should have been committed somewhere. But I suspect today, if you heard of a weeping mom over a son who didn't believe the same thing she believed, someone would suggest psychotherapy for that woman, right? And I can't see you, but I could hear you if you would say something. Would that, am I correct? Someone would suggest psychotherapy. If you were really stressed out that your children didn't believe what you believe, in fact, you might be accused, one of those big words that they're using now, I'm not sure which one um, would be used of you, uh, but one of those words that begins with uh, I-S-T, one of those big words would be that you would, why would you think you should, you should have, you should, need to impose your beliefs on your children. Well, let's talk about how things have changed, especially in the West. Now, some Eastern cultures, that's not, this is not true, but Western culture. Let's look back. Let's look back in 2008, I mean, uh, 1968 would have been about the time my mother prayed that prayer. And let's look, let's look back at... Um, Let's look back at 1 AD and consider how some things have radically changed in Western culture. First of all, parental authority went unquestioned and family structure unchallenged. 
to more or less, less in 1968 than in 1 AD, absolutely. But more or less, parental authority went unquestioned and family structure unchallenged. The, the idea of replacing the directing of the child from the parent to the state, really, as far as I can see, and I haven't read everything, and some of you are much smarter than me, so you can correct me later. Oh, it's not, wouldn't be good for you to stand and correct me now, okay? Just, just hold it. But the idea of replacing the directing of the child from the parent to the state as far as I can see, didn't come along until Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto about around 1848. Uh, Marx wrote to Engels, blessed is he who has no family. Uh, previously, they had written a book called, or a work called Together called The Origin of the Family, and in that we see the basic outlines of their thoughts. Among other things, they preached a fanatical push to abolish all rights of inheritance, to end home and religious education, to dissolve monogamy and marriage, to pursue pre and extramarital sex, to foster and tolerate, as Engels put it, the gradual growth of unconstrained sexual intercourse by unmarried women, to nationalize all housework, to shift mothers into factories, to move children into daycare nurseries, to separate children into community collectives apart from their natural parents, and most of all, for society and the state to rear and educate children. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of Western culture has followed Marx and Engels. In most of the Western world, we have shunned the cold, dark, and violent world of atheistic communism. But the intellectual elite seem to be in agreement that the almighty state has more wisdom than parents. And the autonomy of the family unit must be changed and even maybe abandoned for the values of a collective consciousness. That is a major shift in how the family is viewed. The second change that I see is that children's education and information in 1 AD, more or uh, quite a bit less, but still more than less, children's education information was almost entirely controlled by their parents. This is the first generation, as far as I know, and I say this, I've said this a dozen times lately. This is the first generation I know that the students do not need their parents for information. And a study from the Journal of Scientific Study of Religion just last week said this. It revealed a correlation between increased internet use and less religious affiliation. They have already established a correlation between increased television viewing and less religious activity. In other words, if you are a Christ follower, what you're saying to your children is not being affirmed or validated. I mean, I, don't, I have a hard time seeing myself as getting older. I just don't, I don't relate to it. I just like, well, I don't think, I think I'm still young. And it's hard for me to imagine how, how my, dad, my dad used to always say, I can't believe I got this old. 
But I would think, Dad, this is only al- what's the alternative? <laughs> but, but I remember, you know, I remember my sixth grade teacher leading in prayer. And, and I'm not trying to take us back. We ain't going back, folks. We ain't going back. I don't, I don't know if you got the memo, but we're not going back. I, and, and, and she's the same teacher. And, and this is so bizarre, I shouldn't say, because you're going to probably want to get me analyzed or something for some damage this did to me. This is the same teacher that when I got in a fight in the bathroom, and which I was prone to do because I was hot-headed in those days, uh, she gave me a paddle with a wooden paddle. And I did not tell my parents because I didn't want to get another one at home. Don't, and you're going to tell me the world hasn't changed. That was their world. And that same woman, that same dear woman, when I'm up to bat that summer, my one my short baseball career, and the only triple I ever knocked, I heard her yelling my name and cheering me on. That was a different world. My parents' only real competition was my less religious cousin. That's really the only competition they had. And whenever I would visit his house, they would always complain to me that I was much harder to manage when I came home. Because Paul was, uh, had a lot more toys and everything. And I mean, when I mean toys, I don't just mean tinker toys or, or, uh, or, or, or those things. I mean, he had horses and he had motorcycles and, and I didn't have any of those things. So I was more difficult to manage when I would come home from the, the indulgences of being a Paul's house. My parents had nothing compared with the portal into the minds of our youth of the World Wide Web. They had nothing compared to that. And I often shudder when I think, what would have happened to me if I'd had the internet? I know what I got into without the internet. If I had, I don't have my devices here, I got this device. The click of a button, I could be seeing any images, talking to people. Your parents, some of you, your children have 200 friends that you don't even know. You never even talked to them before. This is a brave new world. My parents had nothing compared with it. Many parents, you're rightly concerned about the children and online pornography and online bullying. You're rightly concerned, but are you aware of the militant and evangelistic atheism that has established a prominent social media platform? And these are not the old school atheists. The old school atheists said, you go ahead and believe in God, but leave me alone. That's no more. This is not the new, new school atheist. New Yorker magazine read a feature article in the fall of 2015 that summarizes what the new atheists are saying. Then this article is titled, All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. This new strain of atheism led by men like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Ollie Rizvi, even from the grave, Christopher Hitchens, they're not saying we're atheists, leave us alone. They're saying that religious faith must be driven from the face of the earth in order to liberate humanity from its ignorance. Science and reason must be put in its place to save our planet from the backward thinking of religious orthodoxy. They are saying that religion has caused more deaths 
and violence and oppression than anything in the world. Now, that is a bold-faced lie. And uh, I don't know, if, I can't see if Steve Gonzalez is back here today, but Steve recommended a book the other day that I've read two or three chapters out of called Atheism Kills. And he, he's pushing back on this whole narrative that the, that the religion is the greatest killer and the greatest oppressor. It, it's just not true. And I don't have time to, to, to explain it to you uh, in the research I've done that shows it's just, it's just ludicrous. That re- and now, yeah, people have died because of, of religious, but it's not written. I'm not going to get in the weeds on that because I, I have a whole thought process about that. But, but that's what they're hearing, and they're hearing the sound bites, and, and their, their brains, you know, no offense, young people, but your brains are not connected yet. You're, the neurons in your brain, uh, your frontal lobes are not connected until, to the rest of your brain until you're about 21 years old. And in that environment, you're being thrown into, you're asked to be totally separate from authority. You are being sequestered. You're being given a private and secret world in which authority and the wisdom of your fathers and mothers and the wisdom of pastors and the wisdom of church leaders and the wisdom of the aged, you are completely separated from it by people who are telling you that we're all stupid and we're all crazy and we just want to oppress you. That's the new world. The primary tolerance, the primary value of this world today is tolerance. And and we we also believe in tolerance. And I don't have time to unpack for you biblical tolerance. There is an incredible, and sometimes the church has done a horrible job. Our intolerance has been horrible. And so it's something we got to talk about and get better at. But the new primary value is tolerance, and the, the, the 21st century unpardonable sin is intolerance. So I'll leave that. I'll leave that. That's a whole conversation. The third thing that I would bring up to you that has changed is, 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 is and don't, don't let this trigger you, <laughs> uh, that I'm trying to lead us back into a patriarchal culture, uh, because that's not, actually now I'm trying to do it all. In fact, I think that's a big mistake to try to reproduce some previous culture. But the authority of fathers was total in the first century and still symbolically embraced in the 21st. Some of you are old enough like me to remember shows like Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. The uh, father, Ward Cleaver in Leave it to Beaver, was actually a pastor, you know. He was a Methodist pastor from Minnesota who, trying to earn some extra money, became an actor. And so he wrote and directed many of those episodes. And we all know he was the wise one who came and solved the children's problems. Now, that's, this is not to say that women were not often the biggest spiritual voice. But if so, dad was usually behind mom going, respect your mother or I'll knock you into tomorrow. Another classic line was, and I bet you haven't heard this one in a while, wait till your father gets home. Radical feminism didn't come along, has not come along and promoted the idea that women should be the heads of households. That's not what it's done. But rather that women should be liberated from the household. There's literally an abandonment, listen to me, of the concept of headship. 
the unattended consequence of this headless animal is children who are left to be shaped primarily by the shapers of the household culture. And what are they most connected to? The internet, social media, school teachers, peers, and new secular orthodoxy. I'm just here to tell you that Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. At a time when Israel was being led, this is an important point. I wish we had time to dig deeper in it. At a time when Israel was being led by an overly emotional, hysterical king. Just make this connection. We're being driven by emotion right now in our society. We're being driven by hysteria. What is the outrage of the week? Have you, have you, have you gotten in touch with the outrage of the week? <laughs> Israel was being led by a hysterical, overly emotional king who would replace God's commands with his own reasoning. As a result, young David was a fugitive because God had anointed David to be king because David would obey the word of God and not just follow his own emotions. One night, young David got his harp out. He's running for his life from this emotional, hysterical king who wants to kill him because David has been anointed as the next king and he knows it. One day he gets his harp out and he wrote and he sang a verse that's recorded in Psalms 11.3. The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? Well, Noah actually is going to help us answer that question. He built an ark to save his family. Now, here's what the journey God took me on this week, I feel. I believe it was God. That began with concern and worry and maybe doubt, uh, maybe even a touch of despair, I morphed to the place where I began to study Noah and I began to study David. And I began to hear God say, I believe, God say to my heart, everything's okay. I'm going to raise up people who will do what's never been done before. Because that's what I've always done. I always raise up people who do what, say, what people say can't be done. I always raise up people that just shall live by faith. Phil, there's a whole chapter in the Bible, I felt like God said. Go to, go to Hebrews 11. There's a whole chapter about people who did things by faith, who did things against all odds. And I began to get excited. Okay, I got a chance to be a part. Bethany Community Church. We could be a part of a grand experiment. A grand experiment, a grand vision of imparting faith. And maybe we fail. And I don't, I, I think we fail sometimes. I feel a great sense of burden for, for all those who are no longer walking with Christ, who once came to our school and our youth group and our church. I probably think about them too much because I need, Bill Hybels says something that always haunts me. Bill, I mean, he didn't say it to me personally, but here I always personalize it. You, you, only, you don't have enough tears for the people that are walking away from you. You only have enough tears for the people who are coming toward you. And so I believe that I'm looking at some people this morning who are coming toward me and who want this, and who desire this, and who want 
at some level. Now, I, when I close this morning, I'm going to bring this all together. But um, Noah answers the question. He built an ark to save him. Now, save here is not a theological word. It's not like they were all born again. It's a practical word. There was going to be a flood. They destroy the earth. They needed something that would float, right? But the building of the boat stood for something in a world that had lost its way. God had these parents build a life that would survive the storm that was coming. The the story of Noah and the ark makes it crystal clear how God thinks that I am to respond and you're to respond to your family and to your culture that is telling you that you've completely lost your mind to, to take your kids to church and believe in the Christian God. Genesis 6, 5, it says at that time of Noah, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And I'm not, I'm not even saying that verse is parallel to Western culture today. I'm telling you about Noah. I'm telling you how bad it was for him. And I, I, think it's, I think he had it worse in some ways. He was the only one. I don't think you and I are the only ones. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Well, I think we're pretty bad out there, but I don't think it's that bad yet here. Noah's response, though, worked in 2400 B.C. Or, yes, and it will work in 2018 A.D. Amen? I believe it will work. So let me tell you what I believe Noah's Ark was about. Noah's Ark was, number one, about love. It was about love. Here's a man who loved his family enough to dedicate his life to building something for them. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. That meant that God looked down from heaven and thought, now there's an image bearer of mine. There's someone who hasn't let the dark forces distort their image that I created them in to the extent that they've lost their love. When people engage in unbridled immorality, when people engage in unbridled violence, that culture has a love problem. And God looked down at Noah and said, this man is different. He's a man who has love. God is love. I can relate to him because Noah, God, you know, we talk about looking into God to see who we are. Well, God looks at us to see who he is. God looked at Noah and said, that's who I am. That's the kind of man I am. The kind of man who will spend his nights and days building an ark for his family. The kind of man who will sacrifice. The kind of man who will stand up to the world around him for 120 years. 120 years he would stand up when everybody around him was losing their minds, going crazy, thinking of nothing but evil continually, killing each other, destroying each other, having all kinds of immoral sex. He stands up and he says, I'm going to be different because the only only thing that would motivate him not to go along with his culture was love. Love for his family, love for his wife, love for his three boys, and love for God. God is love. The second thing about Noah and the Noah's Ark, Noah's Ark was about contrast. Contrast. Noah wasn't afraid to be different than the culture. He was not afraid. How do we contrast with the culture? It doesn't mean rejecting the culture. It doesn't mean disliking. It doesn't mean hating. 
It doesn't mean shaming. It doesn't mean any of those things. We contrast the culture when we obey God's word, even when it sometimes makes it look odd. Even if he tells us to build an ark, imagine, imagine. God, you think God's asked you to do some difficult things, but he hasn't asked you to build an ark yet. <laughs> I mean, it's, the ark was a concept, a boat. A boat was a concept that nobody thought of in the middle of dry land. <laughs> it was a weird, odd thing to do, to build an ark. If you are going to begin to lead your family in the path of godliness, in the path of purity, you are going to do some things that your family, your extended family is not, and your neighbors are not going to understand. But you know, in social psychology, differentiation is a sign of health. Of health. I said in social psychology, differentiation is a sign that you are healthy. Your ability to, to be different, and even, even in our families, even in marriage, one of the things that makes a healthy marriage is differentiation. When one person so dominates that the other person doesn't need to think, you don't have a healthy social situation. You've got what we call group think, and group think is sick. Group think is toxic. So one of the healthiest things you could do is differentiate yourself. One of the healthiest things you could do is look deep inside yourself and figure out what in the heck you believe. What do you think? You know, another thing that's differentiating and contrasting is being completely kind and loving and accepting of those who disagree with us. That's where the church has a Greatest opportunity to shine right now is being totally kind, totally loving, totally accepting to those who disagree with us. I'm noticing, pardon me for looking at the culture, but I saw, I'm noticing they're not doing a very good job at that right now out there. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that in the culture, they're not disagreeing very civilly. They're not, they're not saying, can't we just agree to disagree? I don't hear any language like that. A few people are attempting it. But I know in my little way, uh, in, in, in my social media, reaching out to people on the other side, I usually get called names and shut down. I, so far, nobody's reached back to me and said, we, uh, we appreciate your point of view. It's not ours, but we appreciate it. God bless you, sir. I haven't heard anything like that yet. I've heard you are a danger to society. <laughs> you are the reason for the uh, for the pogroms, and you're the reason for the uh, uh, what are they uh, the other thing that the Catholics did to the Muslims and Christians? What were they called? Crusades. You are the reason for the crusades. And I always say, well, have you ever heard of Mao Zedong and a few other folks on the other side? All right, that doesn't ever go get me any points. Listen, Mr. and Mrs. Noel, we're in an extremely, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I know I'm going a little over today, but I want you to hear, the game's not till three. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Noah, we're in an extremely violent culture. If Mr. and Mrs. Noah had been going around screaming at abortions that they were baby killers, 
If they were going around telling gay people they, they were going to hell for being gay, they would have been eliminated. For, never mind needing an ark. They would have needed an ark. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And you, you parents need to understand that whether you like it or not, your children, no matter how much you supervise, and I hope you do supervise, that's a whole other conversation, they're probably more impacted by the culture than you are. And you will not reach their hearts if you are hateful toward the culture. You will not reach their hearts if you are angry at the culture. You will not reach their hearts if you sound intolerant toward the culture. You must, you must stand your ground, but speak the truth in love. Look at your neighbor, say, speak the truth in love. You must speak the truth in love. Because as I said earlier, the greatest value they have, even your Christian young person, the greatest value they have is probably tolerance. And it is a biblical value, so you can teach it from a biblical perspective, and that's what you've got to learn how to do. Hey, there's a positive to everything that's going on. Tim Keller always puts it well. He said both secularism and devout faith are growing. What's going away is the mushy middle of religiosity. I say, praise God. I say, hallelujah. You're going to be at church now because you believe and you want to be here. That could create some really powerful churches. And it will. The final thing about Noah is Noah's Ark, or the Noah's Ark, what it was about, was credibility. It wasn't Noah's authority that brought his kids into the Ark. It was his consistency and his credibility. I can just imagine a conversation that Ham, Shem, and Japheth had. That's just three boys. About, do we want to go into that boat with Dad? <laughs> do we want to... He's, he's saying someday we're going to go and live in there with him. Do we? If he was a grouch or a nut, I think they would have abandoned him for the culture. Secondly, to go in that boat with him, I mean, they had to believe that all those people down at the school and the bars and the sports arenas were wrong and dad was right. Dad had to have some credibility. Parents, you're going down the wrong path when you rail against society. But you're even more in error when you measure your moral rightness by what society tells you. After all, while your, while your kids will just skip you and go right to the source of this new moral wisdom, but if you make God and his word your source of moral authority, your credibility both in God and yourself will grow. Stephen Furtick, Elevation Church, says God cannot be the source of your strength if the world is the source of your standards. And, and Stephen Furtick is cooler than me, so just... Mark that down. The fact that Noah found grace in the eyes of God meant that God was showing up in his life in observable ways. And his kids saw it. They saw God in their dad. And I'm sure that we don't hear much about mom, but I'm sure mom as well. The bottom line, here's the bottom line. We have a real faith in a real God. And we aren't about to let the fact that we're on Mars Stop us from growing the fruit of the gospel on earth. Amen? I want to talk, I want to close by making the point that God will supernaturally, if you will, this isn't about, 
This isn't about you going home and laying down the law for most of you. This isn't about that. This is about you as dad and you as mom beginning to live the life like you've never lived it before. I'm looking over here to my left, and, and, and just, just bear with me, okay? I look over to my left at Scott. We, Susan came up here, I believe it was last week. I remember when Scott, way back up at where is now BCC Kids Auditorium, that's when Scott came to our church. What year was that, 1994 or 96? 1995, Scott came into our church. He had made a commitment to Christ at an Amway meeting. I don't think you sold any Amway, but you met Jesus. And I watched Scott come week after week. After a while, he started bringing Zach. Never once did he say anything remotely critical about Susan. Susan wasn't interested. She wasn't interested in walking this Christian faith. She wasn't interested in this church. Scott just kept going home, reading his Bible, never whined, at least to me or any of us. You probably whined to Susan, right, once in a while? Nope. No whining. You see, here's what I'm saying. You've got to understand the rules have changed. Dads, most dads, are now you're not going to go home and say, okay, okay, wife. Okay, children, we're going to serve God around here. I predict you will lose. Just, just predict that. But if you will get serious about walking with Jesus, you, you, dad, you, mom, you begin to walk with Jesus. Remember, you're doing something that hasn't been done before. So God's going to have to show you how to do it. God's going to have to show up. And I watched Scott, and I wish I could, there were other stories I won't even tell because of time, where Scott showed a commitment to do whatever, whatever he discovered that God wanted him to do, and whatever he discovered the rules of the church were. He, he discovered rules of the church that I never told him about, and he started doing them because his heart was soft toward God. And when Susan starts seeing Zach go every, every Sunday morning, you know, Mother, Mother Bear's heart, whoa, where are you taking my kid? And she had to follow them down here to make sure he wasn't putting the kid in a cult. And then, then one of my favorite stories, I've told this before, one day they were sitting in the, in the auditorium and whoever got up to receive tithe and offering talked about tithe and offering and Susan turns to Scott and says, are we doing that to my tithing? And he said, no. She said, why not? Winsomeness will win for you. So, I want to show you this little clip, many of you have seen it, of Tim Tebow. I want you to get the point, though. The point of this clip is to tell you that if you will begin to follow Jesus at your house, God will show up. You say, are you afraid to say that? Hey, it ain't my problem. It's God's problem to show up. If God can't defend himself, what's some little skinny preacher like me going to do to defend him. He's got to show up. So, so you've heard this story, but it's a great story about God showing up. 
and I wish I could tell that. Go on the internet, watch the long story, because he talks about his family. He talks about meeting with his parents and all of that, which will help you. Roll it. I want to ask you about one part of the book. When you talk about on your eye black, when you wrote 316 yeah. in the Bible, can you tell the people about the uncanny coincidence that happened in a press conference a few years later? Yeah, well, we were playing for the national championship um, in college on January 8, 2009, and I decided to wear John 316 under my eyes. And during the game, uh, 94 million people Googled John 316, and it was a pretty cool moment. Well, exactly three years later, we happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round of the playoffs when I was with the Denver Broncos. And I didn't even know that it was exactly three years later. It was ja uh, January 12th. Or January 8, 2012, exactly three years later to the day. I just went out there and tried to do whatever I could to win a playoff game. And afterwards, I'm going into the press conference because I love talking to the media. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our PR guy jumps in front of me. He says, Timmy, did you realize what happened? I was like, yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. And he was like, no, did you realize what happened? I was like, all right, Patrick, what's up? He said, it's exactly three years later from the day that you wore John 316 under your eyes. I was like, oh, that's really cool. He said, no, I don't think you realize what happened. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The ratings for the game were 31.6. And the time of possession was 31.6. And during the game, 90 million people had already Googled John 3.16. It was the number one trending thing on Facebook and Twitter. And a lot of people will say, it's coincidence. I say, big God. Hallelujah. I want our prayer partners to get in place. because We want to pray for you. Now, I believe there are probably two groups of people here today. There are those of you, you know, churches are very family-friendly places. So it's very common for people, especially with young children, to say, you know, we need to go to church. And so you come to church because we have the children's ministry. We have a lot of things for families. And so you just come here because you want us to help. You want us to help. Uh, you want us to help you just somehow raise better people. And you know what? I want you to know I appreciate that motive for coming to church. I appreciate you for bringing your family here because this church is family friendly. And we're glad to do that. We're glad to try to be a part of just helping you raise better humans. I think we have some tools that we can really help you do that. So let's do that together. So maybe you're here today and you would like prayer. You may even want to come down here. I just want God to help me raise better humans and now here, here's what you're here's where you might be different than some of the rest of us you don't have this urgency that your kids follow Christ you just don't have it and I could try to guilt you into it but I it wouldn't work and I don't want to do that so here's what I would like for you to pray I would ask you to ask God God would you show me if there needs to be an urgency to lead my kids to faith whether your kids are two years old or 40. Should there be an urgency? Ask God to show you. I'm just going to put the ball right in God's court. I can't handle that burden. So I'm going to give that burden to God. God, you talk to the folks who don't yet feel that this urgency about my kids being Christians and my kids following Christ. There's a second group here today. 
And you're the people who you have, you have an, I call you the evangelistic burden group. You have a burden. You're like, you're kind of where my mother was. You have a burden for your kids to follow, be serious followers of Christ. And for you, I want you to pray, and I'm going to pray with you that God will give you strength and God will give you strategy. I don't know that I know the right strategy for you, but that God will give you strength and strategy. Friday night, I went to see The Darkest Hour with Story of Winston Churchill. And, and I'm super, I'm sitting there in the theater, the darkened theater. I'm glad it was dark because I'm having a lot of emotion. And I'm superimposing the spiritual struggle I'm feeling for the youth that I'm thinking about my sermon. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. I'm superimposing this feeling for youth in this struggle that Churchill in the British Empire was having with Hitler and the Nazi regime. Churchill says in one place, when, when the people around him are trying to get him to compromise and negotiate, he said, you can't reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And of Clement of Attlee, who was a pacifist who wanted to appease Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, he said, he is a sheep in sheep's clothing. <laughs> Great quotes. Then there was this famous speech that he made before Parliament. He said, we have before us many long months of struggle and suffering. We will know many old and famous states have fallen into the grip of the Nazi rule. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. For without victory, there can be no survival. At that point, I'm glad it was dark because tears are dripping off my chin. Because I thought of this fight that I feel for the souls of men, women, and children to know the Savior of the world. And I'm not going to negotiate. We're not going to negotiate with the devil. We're not going to negotiate with, with, with our adversary. My adversary is not a little demoniac with a mustache, but a dark character from the underworld who hates my marriage, wants to destroy my, my family, my kids, and my grandkids. And those voices that are saying, you have to negotiate. You can't expect your kids to love Jesus. No, I'm not negotiating. I'm not negotiating. That's what I desire. I respect those of you who don't agree with me or don't think my priority is right. But just tolerate me. Humor me. Because I want my children to know Jesus. And Let me invite you to come and pray. Maybe you want to come and pray for your kids. If you fit in either group that I talked about, come and pray for your kids, your family, your marriage. Maybe you have something totally unrelated. Come and pray.